0: Expect great things, attempt great things. Expect great things, attempt great things. Like like gasoline on a bonfire. God used these six words from a booklet, a little pamphlet written uh, in actually 1792 by William Carey. And he used those six words as part of that whole booklet, to ignite a movement of global missions to the uttermost parts of the earth. Kerry pastored in England during a time of spiritual lethargy. And, and frankly, during a time where there was just general apathy towards the lost. And there was also this spiritual climate that existed among churches, certainly among the pastors of the churches in his circle of Baptist churches in England. And that, that climate... Widely accepted the belief, and here it is, that if God wanted to save sinners, he did not need the participation of men. That was the climate that existed in which William Carey um, was brought up under and also was preaching in the midst of. William Carey, however had come to believe that the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28 was a binding command on every generation of Christians, not just those who heard it upon Jesus' initial delivery. Through his drive and his heart for all the nations, the people of India in particular, um, God used Carey to bring the Great Commission back to the forefront of the church. I am so thankful for this. I'm so thankful for this aspect of history and the way God moved in this man. Um, and I would add this. May Jesus' last command also be among Redeemer Fellowship's first concerns. A group of 12 like-minded men came around William Carey and they gathered in October of 1792. And they did so in the home of a gentleman by the name of Andrew Fuller, and together they formed a society that soon became known. Their initial name was super long, but it got condensed and became known as the Baptist Missionary Society. Fuller became the secretary of that society, and until his death in 1815, he he basically combined the demands of his busy pastorate where he lived in England with the managing of the affairs of the Baptist Missionary Society to include traveling extensively, raising money and raising funds for the society. All 12 of these men were just, frankly, they were poor pastors. So the initial offering that they took together from amongst themselves in that time in Andrew Fuller's home, uh, and this is the, these are the funds that started the Baptist Missionary Society. They equated, or they equaled about 23 U.S. dollars in today's market, right? So just imagine these 12 guys got together. They had, this is the plan. God wants us to be a part of this. Let's put all our money together and start this thing. And they started with what today would be the equivalent of $23 in our currencies. However, they were resolved to send two of their group to take the gospel from where they were to India. If you'll imagine, $23 they have in their hand among 12 people to be shared among two people to send their, entire, their, their families by boat from there to India with no other support system. But they felt so strongly that God was leading them to participate in God's mission by way of the Great Commission that they resolved to do this. These men were passionate about Jesus They were passionate for his glory, and they were passionate about God's mission. One of the 12 that were there on that day and part of the original uh, Baptist Missionary Society, the founding band of brothers, was a guy named John Ryland. And he records some of the details of that initial meeting uh, to form that society that night. And I'm going to put these words on the screen so you can follow along with what he wrote because part of what he wrote is famous, and I want you to hear it as it relates to... um, what we are about to undertake. But he says this, our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never yet been explored. We had no one to guide us. And while we were there deliberating, Carrie, who by the way was the youngest of all the pastors there, Carrie as it were said, well, I will go down If you will hold the rope. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, uh, Ryland is writing, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. Eight months later, Carrie's young family and one other missionary from that group left off for India by ship, a five-month journey. Um... People from his own country were against what he was doing, so they had to sneak away in a Danish um, merchant vessel and took the uh, journey that way. Carrie would never return again, not because his life was shortened, but because he spent the rest of his days serving in the midst of India. And he offered the rest of his life, and here's here's something I want you to grab hold of for the end of our passage this morning. He offered the rest of his life for the sake of of the name of Jesus, he had a god-given gift for languages, and within eighteen months of his arrival, Kerry would be preaching in Bengali, full messages within about thirty minutes of duration each. Um, and then within three years of that time, he is conversant in both Hindi and Hindustani within seven years of his arrival, and I'm saying this just because this is not humanly natural. This is God affirming every step of the way and bringing fruit to his life. But within seven years, he translated the entire New Testament into the British language. Catch this. William Carey is known as the father of missions. His calling was to be sent. Andrew Fuller's, the pastor in England. Andrew Fuller's calling was to be support. And he did so for the rest of his living days by holding the rope. Together, they were fellow workers for the truth, both actively involved in the Great Commission, to the glory of God and for the sake of His great name. Now why am I taking you to Third John this morning? This morning, I'd like to direct our attention to this one chapter book, Third John. And 3 John is this personal letter that John wrote. We've, we've looked for two weeks at 1 John. 2 John, he writes to be read uh, to the entire church. Third John, he writes on a personal aspect to this gentleman by the name of Gaius. And he wrote Gaius to affirm the way that he had supported traveling Bible teachers. It's not an incorrect stretch for us to see what John taught Gaius as applicable for our support as Redeemer Fellowship and encouragement for the missionaries that we serve and support. Gaius was a first century holder of the rope. And we too, as a church, under the leadership of our uh, mission team, um, we desire to love the nations by going and supporting, um, but we will do these things by God's grace holding the rope, um, loving the nations. We'll do so by God's grace as we. Three things from this morning. Walk truthfully, serve faithfully, and give generously. Direct your attention, if you would, to the first eight verses of 3 John. As I just read it in its entirety, and then talk about these three things that I'd like to uh, make note of this morning. This is the word of the Lord. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This is God's Word for us, Redeemer, uh, His people. Let's look at these one at a time, starting with the first one, and that's this. John is affirming him, Gaius that is, for the way that he walked truthfully. Put that in a, a statement for us today, and it would just be this, walk truthfully walk truthfully check this out he offers him a loving blessing notice again when he writes the elder it's interesting the elder right the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I loved and whom I love in truth beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul all we know about Gaius is limited to this letter the name Gaius was pretty common, so we see it in Acts, we see it in Romans, but it would be a stretch for us to connect the dots and say, this is that guy. In fact, we I'm pretty confident it's not that guy. So all we know about him is what's limited to this, and that's not a lot, but what we do know is that John's love for Gaius was genuine. Within John's first sentence, we see the word truth, and we'll see that word truth come up five different times in the eight verses that we're looking at. And if you've been kind of paying attention to what we've touched on in the last couple weeks from 1 John, this really is an echo of one of the three proofs that John zeroed in on of his first letter that believers can know and kind of use as a measuring stick up against this question. How can I know that I'm a born-again believer in Jesus? Well, one of those ways is that you Take sin seriously. You're, you're walking in the truth, right? You love one another. Um, and this one is zeroing in on truth. Remember back in First John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. John opens up his first letter with these words. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Gaius is not one who is kidding around with the truth. He is not saying of himself, I have no sin. He's, he's actually walking in the truth, right? John and Gaius then as a result, and this is the case with the fellowship of all believers, but John and Gaius are united together by their mutual love for each other and by the gospel of truth that they share together. So check out John's initial blessing. John's initial blessing and his prayer for Gaius involved both his physical condition and his soul. Notice again when it says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I confess that this is a lesson for me. Am I interested in the state of my friends' hearts before the Lord as much as I am about their physical well-being? And and John puts them both on the fore here. And he's, he's actually not even putting one over the other, though I think you could make an argument that one could go over the other. But he's mutually interested in this out of his deep love for his brother, Gaius. And to that, I would encourage us that we might be people who... Pray both for the health and the souls of our friends and our brothers and sisters in this room. How do we do that? How do we get to that point? Well, it starts out by asking good questions, right? So that we can step in as a brother and as a sister in the Lord whose concern is then prioritized in our lives, right? We won't know just based upon what people volunteer but we can show interest and our heartfelt love for them to know more about their soul as well as their physical condition to ask them. Even the simple question, hey, how's your soul? How's your walk with Jesus? I I was at coffee meeting Thursday morning, and it was on the surface for a while, and then I asked that question. And it wasn't an awkward question. It just gave permission to uh, open up the conversation, and it was taken. So we see this in the first, a loving blessing. Then we move on. We're going to move through quickly this morning. And that is this gracious report. A gracious report. And this is a gracious report that John had received from men who had been in Gaius' church and then went back to John's church, probably in Jerusalem, and gave this report. So notice what it says. Here's John's words. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed, you were walking in the truth. Just simply said, and just quickly said, I would like to add, that Gaius' walk is in keeping with Gaius's talk. There's not a contradiction there. And so when he says um, that I came, they came and testified to your truth, That is not a hint of um, subjective truth, as in, you have your truth, I have my truth. What John is referring to here is the way you are living out faith. The way that you are, without any contradictions, fleshing out what you believe about the truth of the gospel. But it happened to have brought joy to John's heart when these traveling Bible teachers returned back to his church, and and they testified to the level of hospitality that Gaius had shown them. Now, hospitality was culturally expected in John's day. Uh, The hostels would not have been a place that one would want to go and stay in unless they wanted to be um, kind of... Rubbing up against the uh, simple nature of the day, they, they would not. They would have been places of ill repute as a place, as opposed to places of safety where you would just go for lodging, right? So, among the Christian believers, hospitality would have been expected and normal, and it would have been the cultural expectation of the day. But something must have been going on with the level and nature of Gaius' hospitality that he had shown. Maybe it was just so extravagant, or maybe it was extravagant enough to warrant him being mentioned in front of John's home church upon these men's return. John cannot see Gaius' heart, right? But he had received testimony about his life. And he had received testimony about his walk. And he had received testimony about his generosity and his benevolence and his hospitality. It was clear that he was living out the gospel truth that was in him by way of his union with Christ. John knew, that the, John knew this more than maybe anybody because of what he wrote in John chapter 15 uh, that Jesus had shared, right? Right? John knew that as disciples abide in Christ, they bear much fruit. And the evident fruit of Gaius' life was love. Love for Christ, love for those who share his word, and anticipatory love uh, for the impact that that word might be able to make on the people with whom it's shared. This brought John joy. But he mentioned an even greater joy. Check out what he says next. This greatest joy. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now it's right, parents, for you to adopt this as just a truth statement in your life that nothing could bring you greater joy than to know that your boys and your girls grow up loving Jesus and serving Jesus and leading their family to do the same. However, John did not give birth to Gaius. Physical birth, right? So it is not incorrect for you to dismiss yourself from what John is saying to Gaius here and relate it to your own children. However, there's a contextual thing here that forces us into knowing that John is talking about A different aspect of children, right? We don't know the details behind how John shared the gospel with Gaius and Gaius trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. We don't know how Gaius came to faith other than the fact that by what John is saying here, John led him to the Lord. But the fact that Gaius is continuing to walk in the truth of the gospel and is even serving in gospel ministry, probably leading his church right there where he's been written to, brings great joy to John's heart. God only knows the kingdom impact that was brought into effect through the rest of Gaius' life. You know what I'm saying here? Who knows what all the Lord did through Gaius' life, From that moment on, as a result of that initial investment of gospel conversation and leading John to the saving way of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit beginning to work in Gaius' life and molding him and forming him and fashioning him into someone who is freely giving and freely supporting and cheering on the spread of the kingdom of God. And it wouldn't have stopped there, Right? So John is overjoyed when he's learning that his children are walking in the truth and he's trusting what's going to happen in the future. Let me take you back to William Carey's life for just a second. Early in his life, he's a teenager, he he learned the trade of shoemaking at 17 years old. It was certainly not a glamorous vocation. He wasn't depressed. I have no indication that he's depressed about this. This is just what he did and what he was going to do for the rest of his life. But there were few options for him other than this vocation that he finds himself in and he apprentices in and he learns the trade. Yet as God would have it, I'm sharing this part of his story as an encouragement. I hope. As God would have it, it was through his tenure as an apprentice, an apprentice shoemaker, that another young cobbler whose name was John War. John War presented the gospel to William Carey. And in 1779, when Carey was 17 years old, he cast himself into the arms of a merciful God for the glory of God alone. And he was saved by faith and grace. And the rest of um, the modern missionary movement was birthed from this conversation right here. Was it an accident that this young 17-year-old boy, William Carey, finds a career path as a cobbler in a place next to another Christ follower who shares the gospel with him? And by God's grace, William Carey trusts Christ. Don't reserve your conversations about the gospel for those times where you think, okay, it's obvious I gotta say something, or this person's life has totally now imploded. I'm going to share just one little thing with hopes. Be aggressive and be liberal with your words in the gospel, with your coworkers, with friends, neighbors, ball team members, and trust the results to the Holy Spirit himself, who knows who you're sharing the gospel with. About seven, eight, nine years ago, I I frankly don't remember how long it's been, but I get this phone call from a college-age kid who was moving to California. He said, you may not remember me, but I'd like to come and visit with you. And I said, come on, bro. And he came, and he uh, shared a story about a time that I had spoken up in Dallas Bay and shared the gospel through a story that maybe I've shared with you all before about a mishap in a rental home that my brother and I owned. As a result of that story, God gripped this kid's heart as it pointed to Jesus and the cross, and he was saved that night. It was a student venture meeting, and later, some years later, he call, makes his phone call, and he tells me about that night. He says, you don't know me. I was in this room, but I just want to kind of follow up with you. Thank you for what you did and let you know what's next for me. He said, I'm moving to California To spend as much of the rest of my life as God will allow to pour into high school kids through student venture there. And I'm just, I want you to know what the Lord's doing. And in that moment, it wasn't this time of of pride with, man, what a great talk that must have been. Or it wasn't any of these. It was just joy that in spite of us, God would use the gospel to allow it to be planted in the hearts of people. And I'm so grateful for Him. I'm grateful for what He's doing today. And I'm grateful for a guy named John War, who while he's making shoes, is sharing the gospel with a kid named William Carey. And God knows all of these things. Gaius walked truthfully. And last thing before we kind of move on, he served faithfully. He served faithfully. If I can direct your attention to verses 5 and 6, just touch on these pretty quickly. Um, But I want you to hear this. John's primary purpose in writing this letter was to offer the following commendation and encouragement to Gaius. Likewise, as we're being led by our missions committee, meeting new folks who we're partnering with all around the world, some of which we've known for years. I'm encouraging us to follow this same commendation and same encouragement. And that's this. Beloved, It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. Here again, John commended Gaius for his self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial generosity as faithfulness. It was an evident proof that he was following the one who had generously and benevolently given his own life so that he could have life. These men were strangers to Gaius, right? For all indication, otherwise, I don't think John would have put this here, I don't think Gaius knew these people. He just received them into his church. They served the body by teaching, um, like our missionaries serve when they give their lives living somewhere else. And he is um, now returning that with um, the way he treats them in hospitality and sending them off. So he commends them for that. And then he offers this encouragement. It is ours as well. He says this, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Do you feel the weight of that? In a manner worthy of God. In essence, John is saying that nothing less than such generosity would be worthy of God. Why? Because God has expressed His supreme generosity in the giving of His Son. I know we know that, but I want to be marked by that. So God's expressed His supreme generosity in the giving of His Son, and this is to be the basis and the driving force of the mission of the church. Hear this. Jesus provided a way for people to have a standing before God. How? By standing in their place under God's judgment. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. No message could be sweeter, and no generosity given in support of that mission could be seen as excessive. Redeemer. I'm borrowing the language of our text here we will do well to look for ways to generously, forgive me, but to generously support and send on their journey those who give their lives to share the gospel. Third thing comes from verses 7 and 8, and I share this with what I hope amounts to some practical things you can do as a family. Live generously. Walk truthfully. And now he's telling him to live generously. He offers three reasons from the text that Gaius was to continue to, and I'm I'm inserting my own language here, to hold the rope. The first is this. For the sake of the name of Jesus. For the sake of the name of Jesus. Notice what he says. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. And that's all he says. The expression for the sake of the name is packed with force. And it's actually packed with basis for the mission of God. It was for the sake of His own name that God had redeemed a people for Himself. And through that people would draw the nations to Himself as worshipers. And that is the end goal of all missions. In fact, Piper says missions exist because worship doesn't. So this is God's mission and heart, that there would be peoples from every nation who would voluntarily be worshipers of Him. When the people of God's creation, Adam and Eve, failed to walk in obedience to His commands in the Garden of Eden, God's mission was set into motion. That mission would involve a man who would not only obey without sin, but would also fulfill everything in the Old Testament that it had been established to propagate. And by that I mean this. And I'll just truncate all of this this way. The kings of Israel were to lead their people in obedient worship. And as a result the nations to the glory of God would be drawn to worship their God as well. You get a hint of this working when when people like the Queen of Sheba come to see Solomon. And what are they doing? It says, we've never seen this kind of wisdom. What was that to do? It was to point the nations to God, right? They built a grand temple that was to be the place that was called by His name and that would welcome the nations as worshipers. Solomon stands up in prayer to dedicate that temple, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 33, he writes these words. Just hear the language, and I'll try to underline in bold print what I want you to hear here. But he says this Likewise, in this prayer, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name. In your mighty hand, and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name." Fast forward then through the rest of the Old Testament. Get to the New Testament. Get to the days of the apostles. Jesus has ascended. Now the 12 apostles are on the move and on mission, um, equipped by the Holy Spirit, spreading the gospel. People are being healed. And the Jewish people are rising up in angst against this because they want this to be stopped, right? They're aggressively sharing the gospel. They're aggressively, obediently sharing the good news of the gospel and the Jewish leadership arrest them, and then they beat them trying to bully them into silence. But their attempt to intimidate the apostles fueled their drive, fueled their worship, and fueled the spread of the church, right? In Acts chapter 5, then the apostles, having been arrested, having been beaten, they come out of there and notice their response. They say, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. For what? They say, for the name. Fast forward to chapter 9. Paul has just been converted and a gentleman by the name of Ananias has given instructions by God. Go to Paul and tell him this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Back to our text in 3 John. John is telling us that one reason that we are to live aggressively, Redeemer, us, one reason we're to live aggressively for the gospel and to live generously in support and holding the rope and and to go over the top in our support for those living as missionaries is that they do what they do. Why? Why? For the sake of his name. For they have gone out for the sake of his name. May our holding of the rope, Redeemer, be motivated in this same way. Second reason he gives is this, and it's, it's, pretty, it's very self-explanatory, right? That God's mission need not be funded by the world. God's mission need not be funded by the world. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills and it's the pleasure of his people to give of what they've been given by him back into service to support folks like these traveling Bible teachers or the missionaries all over the world. They are accepting nothing from the Gentiles, it says. So the second reason requires very little to expound upon. It's It's the pleasure and responsibility of the church, right? To support the work of missionaries through generous giving. May we as a church, and I say this intentionally, but it it really frankly has been something that has resonated that I'm, I'm trying to have land on my own heart. But may we as a church not be so married to achieving the American dream of amassing wealth, that we lose sight of the fact that we're actually married to the Son of God who exhausted all to purchase with his precious blood. And may we leverage what he's blessing us with for the sake of his name. The third and final reason is quite encouraging, and I've put it in rope holding language. Rope holders are partners in the truth. Rope holders are partners in the truth. Notice how he says it. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. That we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers for the truth. Next week, it's going to be my pleasure to introduce you to some friends of My families, one of them actually graduated from LFO back in the day. He was a youth group in the youth group that I grew up in. He came to Christ in college. He and his wife surrendered their life to missions, and I'll let him tell you where he serves and lives. Uh, But they'll be here, and they'll introduce themselves to us next week. They just happen to be here on furlough for the month, and they're going to leave here and come to lunch, I guess, at our house. We haven't actually talked about those details. Um, But... Shannon and I have supported them, I guess, since day one. Um, And it has been a joy to send that support check. And even on the occasion, I've traveled over to where they live and serve in South Asia, to their field to encourage them. And I've had the high honor. My family has. One one time, one of my children's birthday parties, they... um, they asked for no gifts to be brought to them as for their birthday party, but to bring packaged things that could be sent to this family where they live in South Asia. And it just became part of, that family became so intimately known by us that we're cheering them on from where we were um, that what I want you to hear is that the high honor that I see from Third John chapter verse 8 is that although they live somewhere else in another country, serving the people that they're serving and introducing them to the gospel. And I live here. By God's grace, we're fellow workers with them. And I want you to see that. I want you to see that about our friends who serve in Canada. I want you to see that about Laura who's learning language in France and about to um, go to Togo, Africa. And I want you to see that about Chris who's working in South America that as we're supporting them, We're not just writing checks and we're not just having token prayer things. I want our our prayers and our giving to be ignited because they've gone in the sake of His name, for the sake of His name, and as they go and as we partner, we really are partnering with them. We're fellow workers for the truth. Let me wrap up this morning. Uh, I thank you, actually, because you, Redeemer, have exhibited... Not only a willingness, but a strong motivation to embody what John is commending Gaius for. Um, from day one, our church has seen it as a high priority to have people that we support, and and we've Bill is gone, right? And and we've we have seen evidence that you get this. So hear me saying, yes, and let's don't lose that, and I wanted to bring you a biblical foundation and reason for it. Let me uh, let me wrap up with just about five things. These are five practices. Um, they'll feel a little random to you, but these practices can help condition your future mission muscles. What do I mean by that? Well, we are presenting to you and putting before you people groups. We are letting you know who we're praying for, and we're asking you to diligently pray for those. And, and here's a few more things that you might consider doing as a family so that you might be flexing those muscles for when God, A, brings a, a different level of need upon your radar, or even begins to break your heart for the nations and peoples and says, you know what? I think he's calling us not only to be holders of the rope, but ones who go. So just some random things that you can begin to incorporate into your marriage, your dinner table, your family devotions, or whatever the case may be. Here's number one. These are not on the screen. As a family, consider researching the people groups that our supported missionaries are engaging and pray through what you learn. So do some Google searches about the First Tribes people in Canada or the Togolese, um, which is a small country, but they're a quite um, condensed area from where Laura is going to. And there are not high-density concentrated people groups of them here in the United States. But I want to know about those things. And I want you guys to consider doing some research on your own about some of these people groups so that when we throw out names, you're not just hearing names of people serving, but you're also learning and kind of internalizing things about the people that they are engaging with on a day-to-day. That's number one. Second thing. When you receive an update or an email from missionaries or people that you're supporting personally or that we're supporting as a church... Can I encourage you to respond immediately to that? And it doesn't have to be an elongated response. Even the words, thank you for sending this, communicates to the sender that you're partnering with them and you know it. And you're praying in that moment. I can't tell you how many missionaries in my world and life have told me out of their frustration, we send word. And we never have any confidence that what we're sending is being read. So even when you open it and read it, respond with just a couple words. It's an encouragement a lot. Number three, read good biographies of faithful missionaries like William Carey. And as you read them, pray, God, please clarify how you want me to partner with you in your mission Would you have me be one that goes? Or would you have me be one that continues to hold the rope? Number four of five. Engage with internationals that you encounter. Consider a simple question that disarms and sets the table for them to talk and for them to know you care about what they're going to say. This doesn't have to... B, step A leads to B, and B leads to C, and C is a gospel punch. I'm just saying engage with them in this way. Ask them for one thing about their country that makes their heart smile. Um, It is a rarity that I've asked questions like that of internationals, and if they can understand me, that they have a refusal to engage in conversation. Fourth, I mean, fifth thing, and that's the last one. Open up your home for new people you meet. And ask God to open up doors of relationship and conversation. After 40 years living in India, William Carey passed away peacefully in his home there in India. Having never once returned to his homeland... And as he prepared to leave this world, he insisted that his gravestone contain only his name, his date of birth, and his death. in a simple statement that came from a line of a hymn written by Isaac Watts. It had never been about him. And may it never be about us. May we leverage our lives for the sake of his name. May we hold the rope Motivated by the truth of the gospel. May we look for all kinds of ways to participate in the mission of God. Prioritizing those ways that help us reach out to those who have not yet heard the name of Christ. I'm grateful for the examples of people like Gaius and William Carey and Andrew Fuller. May God help us to follow their lead as they followed His. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your mission whereby You have given us a standing before You as a result of Your Son standing in our place, taking on the full extent of Your judgment. Lord, no greater news could be shared across these nations and world, and it is your heart, as has been evidenced all throughout Scripture, that there be peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue that worship you. Or from Revelation chapter 7, we see the culmination of that vision and mission. We thank you as Redeemer for the ways you're giving us the opportunity to participate with you or would You move in each of our hearts? Would You clarify how You would be, have each of us be a part of this mission? Would You lead our mission team and give them wisdom as they lead us in this way? Lord, we do so for the sake of Your name. And we pray You're honored and glorified in the midst of it. We offer ourselves as ones who have been purchased by Your precious blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.